Dogs fascinate me. I've never really owned dogs before, but recently I got a dog, and you know, you learn all the things that you think you're going to learn about housebreaking them, you know, making sure they're on a routine, things of that nature. But one of the first things that I noticed that in talking to other dog owners, no one else had really pointed out specifically was actually how a dog interacts with the world around it. Now, of course, we know that dogs interact in an excited way about anything that comes into its purview. A butterfly lands somewhere in it, and it's the most glorious thing in the world. And this is similar to you know, children and reminding us about the beauty of the world. But that's a simple viewpoint of that. And it's a good one, but I saw something more, something a little bit different. It reminded me in walking my dog over and over again of Thales. Yeah, that's right. Thales, the ancient Greek philosopher, the father or the first philosopher in the pre-Socratics is pre Socrates, something that Thales said. Now, what I was doing was walking my dog in the same route over and over and over again, day after day, week after week. I would do basically pretty much exactly the same little circuitous route. Now, I, of course, was fine because I could listen to a podcast. So in my head, something new was going on all the time. But in my dog dog's head and in, in, in her world, it was the same route. And yet she was fascinated or enjoying every single second. Now more than that, what really struck me was we would come up to this uh, bush and it was the same bloody bush every day. And yet she pounced and sniffed and, and chomped at it as though it was a new bush, as though she were smelling something she had never smelled before, seeing something she had never seen before. And I thought, but you've seen this every day. Now, trust me, I know dogs don't have memories. They don't hold, oh, this is a bush. I've seen this bush. They don't have propositions. So what really struck me was the idea that, to some degree, my dog was right that it was a new bush, and I was wrong that it was the same bush. When we look at the bush, it's obviously the same bush, just like I'm the same person. But another way of looking at it is that we're always in flux, in some sense, so, for instance, you know, we're, we're constantly uh, chafing off skin. Now, what makes a human is more complex. We're conscious beings. But especially of a bush, there's new things to that bush. Some of the, the leaves fall off. New leaves grow. Insects burrow themselves into the leaves and into the branches. 
a little bird makes a nest right there. Spiders make a nest over here. The bush and the environment of the bush and the, the way that the outside world plays upon the bush changes it all the time. And this was Thales' famous statement that you can never step into the same river twice. So the idea was that you that everything around us is always changing. Now, whether we find that to be fully true or whether there's more to it, I think there's more to it. But the idea is still, I think, sound and going to be very helpful to us today. This idea of constant change is part of the world that we inhabit. And it's what makes the world the world. And it's something that animals intuitively grasp. Now, another story that this actually made me think of was the story of Brighton and Cleobis. Now, Brighton and Cleobis is a story that I first read in reading Herodotus, the ancient Greek, once again, historian. Now, one of the things that has fascinated me about mythology isn't so much just the stories, although I love stories, but it's how people have interpreted them in so many different ways and thought of them in so drastically different ways. It almost reminds me of the bush and my dog. And it seems like they're, you know, why do people change things so drastically? So for instance, let me read a little, just a teeny little segment of this story of Crito, uh, excuse, excuse me, Cleobis and Byton. So this comes from Herodotus, and I won't give you the whole context, but essentially the ancient Athenian, this is Athens was kind of the cultural center of Greece. Greece was kind of the cultural center of the Mediterranean and the ancient Greek world. And Solon has uh, gone on this journey for 10 years. He's the wisest man of Athens at that time. He was the ancient Athenian lawgiver. He gave some of the first laws to ancient Athens. And he goes on this 10-year journey. And one of the people that he meets is the king of a land called Lydia, which would one day become Persia, be taken over by the, um, by the Persians. Now, that part of the story is not actually relevant for here. What you really need to understand is that Solon started to tell this story to Croesus, who is this rich man. He's the richest, you know, most lavish. He lives in luxury and there's lush surroundings everywhere. He's got, you know, the most food. He's got the most beautiful women. He's got the most, you know, grand structures. Everything about him is great and grand. And so Croesus asks Solon, who is the happiest man you know? Now, of course, we know that in parables, things don't go as you might expect. So Croesus says, one man, Tellus, who's like an average fortunate man. And then Croesus thinks, oh, okay, well, he's just not trying to, you know, panhandle me or, or pander to me. So he, then Croesus asks, well, who's the second most uh, ha- happy man that you know? And um, Solon then says, these two young men, Cleobus and Byton. And here's the, the very short story. They were of... Athenian stock, they had enough to live on, 
and on top of this had great bodily strength. Both had won prizes in the athletic contests, and this story is told about them. There was a festival of Hera in Argos, and their mother absolutely had to be conveyed to the temple by a team of oxen. But their oxen had not come back from the fields in time, so the youths took the yoke upon their own shoulders under constraint of time. They drew the wagon with their mother riding atop it, traveling five miles until they arrived at the temple. When they had done this and had been seen by the entire gathering, their lives came to an excellent end. And in their case, the God made clear that for human beings it is a better thing to die than to live. The Argive men stood around the youths and congratulated them on their strength. The Argive women congratulated their mother for having borne such children. She was overjoyed at the feet and at the praise. So she stood before the image and prayed that the goddess might grant the best thing for man to her children, Cleobus and Biton, who had given great honor to the goddess. After this prayer, they sacrificed and feasted. Then the youths lay down in the temple and went to sleep and never rose again. Death held them there. The Argives made and dedicated at Delphi statues of them as being the best of men. Now that is one translation. I don't speak ancient Greek, so I've heard different translations, but one thing that strikes me that I've seen over and over again, this is true of Herodotus and other ancient Greek philosophers or thinkers, as well as modern thinkers, is the idea that the most important principle here is that the Greeks believed in a beautiful death, which I think many ancient Greek men and women did actually believe in that. But there's other things going on here, I think. I believe that one of the most important elements of this story is the story that these two young men did a great deed and they were honored by not being marred. So one of the things in ancient times in general was the likelihood of coming to some kind of horrible end, getting cut through the stomach by a sword or a spear to the spleen, or um, getting bashed in the face with a shield, and somehow surviving. This was a very common thing, having a boar skewer you in the leg and surviving. And the Greeks believed that then you would go into the afterlife like that. If you lost a leg in life, then obviously the afterlife, you would be like that. The Greeks did not have our view of a mind-body dichotomy, which is this idea that you know you have this kind of unchanging, timeless, you know, pristine soul that when you die, it's still pristine, even if all your limbs are chopped off as you you know get older. Diabetes takes you take one limb at a time until you're just a couple stumps. Somehow your soul is still whole. 
The Greeks thought that would have thought that was ludicrous. If you lose a leg in your body, then obviously your soul doesn't have a leg because there's no difference. So they did think of this idea of a beautiful death that is to be in the you know to to have a completely unmarred body. That way you can go into the afterlife like that without any scars. But there is more to this that took me a long time in a, in a couple of studies of the Iliad to understand. The Iliad is the famous, probably the most famous ancient Greek text to the ancient Greeks. You know, today, if you study literature, you probably think that the Odyssey is the most important. And the Odyssey is a wonderful tale, but it's definitely, in their time, the Iliad is one of the more deeper things. And I think the Iliad is a deeper story for a lot of reasons, but that's for another time. But it took a study of the Iliad, which really takes as one of its central themes, the theme of mortality. It took a study of that for me to grasp that one of the values is not merely to die without scars, to have a beautiful death, so that your limbs are still all a part of you and you don't have a horrific scar across your face. But it's also the love of the the ripe. That sounds weird to say, I know. But the love of the pristine moment. What is the perfect ripe human? I mean, we can go to a grocery store and pick out the most ripe apple and, and pick the perfect apple, or especially if we have an apple tree. I actually had an apple tree as a kid, and it gave fruit to a lot of apples. And you know, there is a moment in the blooming of these apples that you can reach up and you can look at this apple and know that it was absolutely perfect was flawless, the most ripe, juicy, perfect apple that you can have. And so we can tell that there's a perfection to that, but what about the idea of a perfect human? Well, we can say, it's, you know, if we take an ancient Greek standing, that, you know, I'm 32. At 32, you're not perfect. You're not at your ideal physical ripeness. Now, intellectually, I'm probably a little bit, hopefully, a little bit more ripe intellectually. And, you know, as Greeks thought progressed, they had a better view of that. But if we take just the physical realm, definitely not as ripe as in your, you know, early 20s. So Cleobus and Byton, Brighton, excuse me, are perfect and ripe men. Yeah, that's right. Perfectly ripe men. The reason I bring that up is because one of the things that has occurred in Western civilization since that time has been the rejection of that idea by religion. Religion has rejected the idea that there is a perfect, ripe moment in, his, in, in a man's life, in a woman's life, in the natural world. Much of all, if, if not the core of all of religion, 
since Jesus and the time of Jesus and the 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 new Christianity that or the Christianity that came from there is a rejection of that idea. I wanted this podcast episode today to be a little special because in a sense I am very interested in the idea of a new church. Now, not a new church that worships, you know, a sun god literally, or you know, that that's pagan in the sense that it worships rivers and rocks and whatever natural things, although you should appreciate those things. There's something else that I'm interested in, and that is the spiritual values for men. Now, humanism is something that I would say in a certain, you know, if you if you schism it off to some degree, and we can talk about that at some future point, but to a, a large degree, I would call myself a humanist in the sense that humanism is the search for values, for spiritual values especially. So these are values that aren't purely material. Although remember, there is no material without spiritual. So it's the spiritual side of the material. And we'll talk about that a little bit today too. But one of the things that I'm searching for are these spiritual values to guide one who does not believe in a supernatural God of any kind, a God that sits above nature. Now, one way that people think about someone like this is atheists. I don't personally like to call myself an atheist, and I don't mostly because I don't like anything I've read from any atheists, really, for the most part. I mean, some say some really interesting things about science that I appreciate, like Dawkins and even Harris, but often they ascribe to a devoid of values mindset, which I do not appreciate, and I do not agree. In fact, there's a huge flaw in modern atheism, uh, that, and it's the idea of what do they believe in. And I've heard atheists say something like, if you have to believe in a god, this is just an example of um, you know, how to have morality or ethics or values without God. And they say, you know, something like, if you have to believe in a God in order to know that it's wrong to murder, then you're a fool. The reason I can understand what they're saying is because I have said that. I've heard that somewhere, and then it clicked with me, and I said, oh, that's right. Why would I need God to know not to murder somebody? That makes no sense. You know, do you really need the spirit in the sky to tell you not to do this? Are you that stupid? Well, so here's the thing that I've come to realize, especially in my research and studies of the psychologist Jordan Peterson. And one of the ways to approach this is he's given me a newfound respect to go into Christian thought and think a little bit more clearly about that which I think is a fair experiment. So for instance, one conclusion that I've come to about that statement is that it is the atheist who is a fool. 
And the reason it's an atheist who's a fool in that statement is because the atheist is dropping the context that they are the byproduct of 5,000 years of cultural development standardized by religion. So it's not natural to not murder. Just go to a savage tribe. It's not a natural thing. It's not this idea that, oh, you know, we live in this civilization where we don't murder each other, obviously. Well, yeah, now it's 2018. So we take for granted a whole slew of scripts that are built into our culture, like not murdering, not revenge. Those are two very complex discoveries that were founded and discovered by religionists. So for instance, if you're in, you know, kind of a, think of a Hobbesian state of nature, it's just you and a couple of people, uh, you know, if you read Lord of the Flies, in, a, in, a, in an island. Now, on this island, so one of the, the people starts to accumulate a little bit more coconuts than you you're probably going to kill him and take his coconuts. Why would you not? You need his coconuts. Now, if you say, because it's wrong to murder, why is it wrong to murder? He's got coconuts. You need coconuts. From a primitive standpoint, that's perfectly logical. There's no reason why you would starve and let yourself starve when someone has coconuts. And this is how the whole progress of human civilization has has developed as it developed one way to think about it is it developed as a way to protect my coconuts from your coconuts that's one big reason why men get together in in a society it's not the only reason but it's one reason it's to say okay we're going to protect our coconuts from those crazy coconut takers <laughs> Now, once you develop a little bit of that standpoint, you say, I'm going to take these, I'm going to keep my coconuts for myself, and we're going to you know, work together to protect our coconuts from those coconut takers. Now, you may say, well, how do you structure that? You could just have an agreement. But I think it's not a stretch to say, especially in a primitive sense when you have no knowledge of the world, to say that God wants it that way, that there is a decree by God that says that you cannot take another man's coconuts, or at the very least, you cannot simply kill another man because you want his coconuts, or for any reason like that. Now, another thing that happens, though, in primitive societies, and we get this in um, a lot of literature, especially ancient literature, but you see this even Shakespeare wrote, um, Romeo and Juliet, which is about you know, the, the byproduct of a series of revenge killings. So revenge is not a, revenge killings are not a natural byproduct that we would not do that. So if you're in a primitive society and it's the Barbera clan, that's my clan and me and my little family tribe and we're protecting each other and then you kill my brother and you're the, the Jerifine tribe, I don't know. And you guys get in a fist fight with my brother, you know, your brother and my brother get in a fist fight, and your brother kills my brother. 
doesn't matter who is right or wrong in that situation. The natural inclination is to then go kill your brother. Well, there's a famous poet, or uh, I should say dramatist, Aeschylus, in ancient Athens, who wrote the Oresteia. This is a three-drama story, three, three different plays put together, and it's about the birth of the court system. And rightfully, he uses gods as an interventionary to the uh, revenge killings that occurs that says we need to set up a system where you're not always killing each other. Because it's a history of violence that is occurring in this story. And then the gods set up a tribunal, and they are the power behind not revenge murder. The, the reason that they did not revenge murder after that is because of the fear of the gods. Is because the power implicit underlying this uh, court system that they were developing is God or the gods. So it's not, so when someone says, I don't need God to not murder. They're dropping the context and the, the whole development of civilization that they are a product of. Sure, it's easy to say, I'm not a murderer and I don't need a spirit in the sky to say that. Okay, thanks, fool. Great. I'm talking to myself, younger Kirk. Thanks, Kirk. <laughs> now, the flip side to this whole thing is the idea uh, that religion has taken hold of and brought to fruition. And that's the idea of the values that we should try to attain are in another dimension. You know, so religious faith presumes a supernatural world of values beyond the natural universe. Humanism, which is what I and would subscribe to a little bit more anyway, humanism is rooted in the values man can discover in the world as he can know it. An interesting poet, and the the poet we're going to talk about today, Wallace Stevens, has a great quote that he said later in life, where he said, the greatest poverty is not to live in a physical world. One of the problems I have with our modern approach to spiritual values is that it seems our modern approach to spiritual values are in utter disarray at best. And we see the explosion of confusion that happens all around us. I believe that our uh, that the, the grouping of our selves in our society, especially in America and, and in the West, is a byproduct of this. I mean, to a degree, the Middle Easterners, the, the Islamists in the Middle East, are superior in that at least they hold some kind of deep values that holds them together. We hold nothing in common that we can, on any values, we believe in nothing together anymore. 
We used to at least have the church. We used to at least have Christianity that kind of could combine all of us together. And even if you're a Republican and I'm a Democrat, at least we're both Christians. Or even if you believe in, you know, um, working hard and I believe in, you know, kind of just relaxing and just doing enough to survive, we can at least come together on Sunday for church. But we can't do that anymore. So we see things like identity politics. And we see things on the left where it's like the Me Too movement, where they're, they're, they're bringing up almost a spiritual, reverential sacredness to the way that they're approaching things like feminism. And they're saying that it is so sacred, you literally can't question it. Like whenever I've tried to question it with people that I like, I've gotten shut down, and their mind literally cannot see alternative ways of viewing what's going on today. And this is true whether it's of gun laws, whether it's of Donald Trump. There's, there's simply a, a schisming off of all of our values. We're, we're building our own little uh, churches some people build a church to, you know, on the alt-right, you have crazy people like, what's his name, Sean Spencer, who's basically building a new neo-Nazism. Literally. How crazy is that? But then we have on the left a, a religion to intersectionality, they call it, which is basically the idea that who he who has, or he, she who has the worst, most minority intersectional relationship with the rest of the world and are the most oppressed are the kings of the universe. So if you are a midget, black, homosexual, transvestite um, person, then you're kind of at the top. You're, you're almost like a unicorn. You know, if you're just gay, you're, you're a little bit at the top. And then, of course, at the very bottom of this totem pole of whatever nonsensical sacredness is the white male. They're the apps because they're the oppressors. They're the, at the absolute bottom. And this is a kind of religion. I mean, they've turned it into a religion, literally. And one of the reasons they have is because we lack spiritual wonder. We don't wonder. That word is a wonderful word. Awe. A-W-E is another wonderful word. It's this idea of standing and thinking and contemplating on the grandeur of something. Now, some people, I think, you know, when you you watch uh, what's happening on campus, some people turn to a religious chanting for their ideology of, you know, we're not going to let hate speech on our campus. So you can actually Google chanters on campus against hate speech. And what you're going to see is something that seems very primitive. And it's something where we are, you know, where these individuals are chanting as though primitive people. But what they're chanting for is to shut down someone who they disagree with. Okay, so the point is that there is a schism in our society about what the realm of wonder. Now, the realm of wonder or the spiritual realm, the spiritual values, has always been in the purview of religion. As religion, in whatever form it has, has become this 
seance of spirituality that, you know, isn't a very codified belief system, a system of, okay, you read this book, you say these chants, you have these stories of Adam and Eve and Cain and Abel, etc., etc., and you're supposed to hold yourself a certain way, you're supposed to do certain rituals, you have certain credos and and, um, Hail Marys that you say when you're in trouble or you're bad, things of that nature. All of that system of belief, nobody really or very few people really follow that any longer. And so new systems of belief are filling the void. So part of my project or my attempt here in a uh, my own personal way, if you want to join me, great. If not, too bad. Too bad for you. Because I'm going on this journey and I hope you'll go with me. But I wanted to point out something about this spiritual values, the schisming, and why I think that has occurred. One of the things that has occurred is, remember, religion, especially you know, in the West, it's been Christianity, has held a stranglehold on spiritual values. We literally cannot fathom spiritual values uh, without some kind of religious structure to it. This is the realm of wonder. And I'm going to quote Ayn Rand here, who is the preeminent atheist, And I'm going to make a proposition about Ayn Rand. Ayn Rand, the atheist and proponent of the virtue of selfishness, was a profoundly spiritual person. I've read her work for years. I worked at the Ayn Rand Institute. I've read pretty much everything she put out and things she didn't put out, I've read. And I believe she is one of the most profoundly spiritual people I've ever read. Now, if that sounds like a contradiction, it's not. Today, you know, we we can think of it, uh, and we might find it to be this paradox. And that's because a paradox is something that appears to be contradictory, but it only appears to be. So this is an important point here, I think. A paradox is, you know, we can think of it as a a seemingly absurd or self-contradictory statement or proposition. That when investigated or explained, may prove to be well-founded or true. So like, for instance, the statement, I know one thing that I know nothing. Or this is the beginning of the end. That's a paradox. So the paradox of Ayn Rand, the atheist being profoundly spiritual, is that we have to understand the stranglehold of religion on spiritual values. That's why we can't fathom that, and we have to unravel that paradox to get to better values that we can discover on our own, and that humans can discover. This is humanism. Okay, so let me read this little quote. This is actually the intro to the anniversary edition of The Fountainhead, the 25th anniversary edition. And by the way, if you are an objectivist, stop giving people or recommending to people who have never read Ayn Rand the fucking Atlas Shrugged. Stop it. Stop. It's crazy. Are you out of your mind? It's not the right book to give to people in 2018. Unless you really know that person, you really think Atlas Shrugged, given their history, the things that they've read in the past is the best book. The best book to give them is probably Anthem First because it's a simple 
you know, a story that's very, that's easy to read. It's pleasant. It's inspiring. And it shows a side that all of uh, Western society that hates Ayn Rand doesn't see. They only see the politics. And then the next book would be The Fountainhead. And then if they liked that, then you can tell them to read Atlas Shrugged. Because hopefully by that point they're, they're in and they love it and they're interested in what she had to say. And that's a more logical progression based on her own ideology and how she wrote the books. Okay, anyway. So here's what she said to the intro to the 25th anniversary edition of The Fountainhead. Religion's monopoly in the field of ethics has made it extremely difficult to communicate the emotional meaning and connotations of a rational view of life. Just as religion has preempted the field of ethics, turning morality against man, so it has usurped the highest moral concepts of our language, placing them outside this earth and beyond man's reach. Exaltation is usually taken to mean an emotional state evoked by contemplation of the supernatural. Worship means the emotional experience of loyalty and dedication to something higher than man. Reverence means the emotion of a sacred respect to be experienced on one's own on one's needs. Sacred means superior to and not to be touched by any concerns of man or of this earth. But such concepts do name actual emotions. Even though no supernatural dimension exists, and these emotions are experienced as uplifting or ennobling without the self-abasement required by religious definitions. What then is their source of referent in reality? It is the entire emotional realm of man's dedication to a moral ideal. So I, I wanted to continue on this before I got into the poem. And the reason is because I think it'll help you understand the poem and understand what I'm trying to do on this Sunday morning. I hope you're listening on Sunday morning. If not, that's okay. But I hope you listen on Sunday morning. If you're a Christian, you go to the Bible for your spiritual values. One of the things that I've learned in reading and, and listening to Jordan Peterson and his lectures on the psychology, psychological importance of the uh, biblical stories is that that is okay. It's okay to go to the Bible to learn things. There are truths in the Bible and in mythology that are important, that we should not just throw away, that we cannot just throw away. No matter how much we think, it underlies everything, even our view that we shouldn't simply, you know, if someone um, robs us or, or hits our brother with a car on accident and our brother dies, we don't just go and slit that guy's throat. That guy goes to a court system. Well, that's not, again, an automatic thing in nature. That took a long time to come to that conclusion. So my point is that one of the things 
that I'm trying to get across with poems for people who hate poetry is that literature, and, and poetry is a form of literature, but literature is where you should go to find your values and to test your values, to experiment with them, to see new values in play. And, you know, I'm going to give you a couple of examples of this kind of of a value, and it's going to be a humanist value, humanist values, and a way of approaching life. This is just one way. It's not the only way. The Bible, there are stories in the Bibles that may go along with this or counter this. But my view of a new church is one that doesn't read simply one piece of literature, the Bible or the Quran, but reads literature, great literature, period. That is the future of the church, of a church. Is It's not a church so much, in, in the ancient sense of the word, as a place to study literature. And in that sense, I think even it's fine uh, from an education standpoint, for instance, to read the Bible in school as mythology. Just like we study the uh, stories of Zeus and the ancient Greek mythologies in school. Some of us do. Now, I, I wanted to make one quick little side note that a lot of people who are, um, if you're one who's listening to Jordan Peterson, I want you to take a moment and, you know, if you're listening to a lot of what he's saying, you're reading his books, take one moment to think, what would life be in 50 years if we accepted the foundational views that he is putting across? And I think the biggest thing that would happen in our culture is that the Bible would be placed on the bookshelf next to Greek mythology as just another book, as just a book to read. There would be no supernatural element to it. And I think even atheists have said that there is literary value in it. The problem is when that value, um, or when, when the value of the book is taken as this supernatural book written by God that you must follow and dedicate your life to because God said so. That's where it becomes a problem. But as far as just being a mythology, there's nothing, I don't see anything wrong with reading it as a, a set of mytho- myths that we can study and a set of myths that even helped humankind for some reason. There, there's value in it in uh, the contradictions and in the individual stories themselves, but only if we can take it as literature. So before I get into the poem, I want to read you a couple of other poems. Uh, Excuse me, I'm not going to read you the whole poem. I'm going to read you a couple of uh, stanzas. One stanza from one poem, another stanza from another poem, and another stanza from another poem. So there's three different stanzas but on a similar theme, and this is a kind of uh, a humanist's affirmation, you know, something that Christians or Islamists might read every Sunday in front of tor- church, you know, at church, like, you know, God is in heaven and I'm, you know, I don't remember this off the top of my head. It's been a while since I've been in church, but you know, what I'm, you know, those creeds that you can look up the, the all father and, and, you know, he, he demands it in heaven and we do it on earth. Like those kind of affirmations. Well, here's a new affirmation 
So this is from George Chapman. Give me a spirit that on this life's rough sea loves to have his sail filled with a lusty wind, even till his sail yards tremble, his masts crack, and his wrapped ship run on her side. So low that she drinks water and her keel plows air. There is no danger to a man that knows what life and death is. There's not any law except his knowledge. Neither is it lawful that he should stoop to any other law. So in this one, we're getting this view of man as a ship, which we've gotten that analogy before, that metaphor before. And it's this idea of even when the sail yards tremble, when, when the, the masts, masts, those big you know, uh, beams in the middle of the ship that hold the uh, sails, even when they begin to crack, you know, when you're getting old, that you're still going to go out into the world and adventure for as long as possible. Even when you're, you're, um, the front of your ship goes so low that you drink from the water of the ocean and you almost drown. Even then, they give me a spirit that on this life's rough sea loves to have his sail filled with a lusty wind. So this is one affirmation. It's this idea of give me that lusty wind. You know, there's not any law that exceeds man's knowledge. And as long as a man knows that there's, as long, uh, uh, there is no danger to a man that knows what life and death is, that really knows that. Again, think Cleoban and Brighton, Cleobus and Brighton. Here's another affirmation that I really love. This one is from uh, Percy Shelley's Prometheus Unbound. Now, Percy Shelley was the husband of Mary Shelley, the woman who wrote Frankenstein. But here's another humanist credo about being good. This is a a form of ideal that you should strive for. That's what you get in a church, right? In a church, you're told values of what you should strive for. Do this, don't do that. Act this way when someone's angry with you. Turn the other cheek when someone's when your neighbor lets their dog crap in your yard. Ugh, that happens to me all the time now, and I'm like, oh my gosh, I'm getting really frustrated with that. Okay, anyway. So here's a humanist credo. To suffer woes which hope thinks infinite. To forgive wrongs darker than death or night. To defy power which seems omnipotent. To love and bear. To hope till hope creates from its own wreck the thing it contemplates. Neither to change, nor falter, nor repent. This, like thy glory, Titan, is to be good, great, and joyous, beautiful, and free. This is alone life, joy, empire, and victory. So Prometheus, as you know, and I'm going to be releasing a new episode uh, on rule two for Jordan Peterson's um, rules of rules of life, if you are reading that book and following along with me. So that'll be coming out soon. But 
this, Prometheus is, is one that I talk about in this new episode. And the idea, you know, what Prometheus does, if you're not aware of that myth, is he steals the fire of the gods to give it to man, which we can think of as the divine light in his mind or the spark of life or consciousness, the ability to be aware. But Prometheus steals this, and he is a titan. He is the god who came before the modern gods. So you have Zeus. Before Zeus had to kill all the titans, and he only kept Prometheus, one of the one of the few titans he didn't kill, or uh, I, I should say, trap. And one of the in this story, in this drama, Prometheus unbound, unbound. Uh, someone says to Prometheus to suffer woes which hope thinks infinite. That's one of the credos to be good that, you know, as he says at the end, this, like thy glory, the glory of being a titan, is to be good, great and joyous, beautiful and free. This is life, joy, empire and victory. To suffer woes which hope thinks infinite. To forgive wrongs darker than death or night. That's like thy glory, Titan, is to be good. To defy power, which seems omnipotent. Just like Prometheus defied the power of the God, the father of all gods, the all-father. To love and bear, to hope till hope creates from its own wreck the thing it contemplates. Neither to change nor falter nor repent. So to continue on your path, that is what it means to be good, according to Shelley's Prometheus Unbound here. This is one credo of the humanist, the one who believes that values, spiritual values can be discovered by man and can be known by man. They do not have to be held in a supernatural spiritual realm outside of the the natural world. Okay, the last little section I'm going to read, the last little stanza is from Ulysses by Tennyson. The lights begin to twinkle from the rocks. The long day wanes. The slow moon climbs. The deep moans round with many voices. Come, my friends, tis not too late to seek a newer world. Push off, and sitting well in order smite the sounding furrows. For my purpose holds to sail beyond the sunset and the baths of all the western stars until I die. It may be that the gulfs will wash us down. It may be we shall touch the happy isles and see the great Achilles whom we knew. Though much is taken, much abides, and though we are not now that strength which in old days moved earth and heaven, that which we are. We are one equal temper of heroic hearts, made weak by time and fate, but strong in will to strive, to seek, to find, and not to yield. So those are three different examples. You know, Shelley's Prometheus Unbound, that we have George Chapman, um, and, and he's an Elizabethan poet, and then we have Ulysses by Tennyson. These three are all basically putting forth one type of affirmation or credo for humanists, which is the idea of the power of the human spirit to hold on. 
That's one. This is just three different approaches by three different poets. Uh, some of them, and you know, Shelley and Tennyson, I think, are, are somewhat contemporary. Chapman is a little bit before both of them. But I believe, I could be wrong on that. But the point is that these are all ways of approaching one idea. My new church would be something like finding broad ideas that have been discussed throughout the history of literature and go through them and then coming to your own conclusions as best as possible to guide yourself here on earth. That's what a church should do. Not try to understand a single book and guiding your entire life on that. I think there's a lot of flaws to that because a single book is not enough. It doesn't give you the complexities of life or the different options, the different alternatives of how you can approach something in a particular instance. Now, this may not make a lot of sense to someone who's extraordinarily mired in the view of an afterlife. Remember, as a humanist, this life is all. And, you know, a humanist wants to live it as richly and fully as possible, to animate the trivial days and, quote, ram them with the sun. The humanist welcomes every reminder of the wonders of the sense world That's the world all around us, the world like my dog and how my dog appreciates all the the wonders of the world and also the mystery of my own response to that. Why is it that a sunset is not, it looks the way it does and does what it does, but that it looks the way that it does? And, And why is it that my senses make it appear that way, and then why is it that I can contemplate it as beautiful? So I am doing this episode on March 20th. That's the beginning of spring. And I wanted to read you a little quote from a book on poetry. None of man's dreams of an afterlife can compare with the sense of rebirth experienced in the yearly return of spring. And I think that goes to the spirit of the poem that I'm going to read to you, Sunday Morning by Wallace Stevens. Because one way, one one of the things we're going to bring out of this is the idea of paradise on earth. Not a paradise in the afterlife. Not striving for some hopeful destiny beyond the grave. But of accepting it as this is it. And thus appreciating that this is it. And there's even more to that that we'll get into. So we're going to get into the poem now. Now a couple things about Wallace Stevens that actually may be helpful in understanding this poem. Not because you need a a historical background of poets in order to understand them, but because of the context that I am giving and what I'm trying to get across. I have an agenda. Just like a, and I don't like, you know, I'm not going to call myself a preacher, but just like a preacher has an agenda, he's trying to get something across 
on stage. So I have an agenda. I ha- I want to get something across with this poem. I don't think this poem does everything. I want to get some one thing across. And everything I'm doing is trying to get that way. And I think understanding a little bit about Stephen's background may help. So for instance, one of the things that I've always loved about Wallace Stevens is, uh, you know, even though I don't agree with all the ideas that are implicit in his poetry, one thing that's really interesting to me is that he's the perfect poet for poems for people who hate poetry. And that's because he's one of the few poets in the history of the world, or I should say in more modern times, uh, but mostly in history, who was a clear, great poet, a poet that even in his own time was studied by doctoral students, PhDs, or you know, studying uh, letters, literature. They studied Stevens even while he was alive. So he was a clearly great poet on certain, in a certain sense, and he was an obvious success in material life. He worked his whole life for the Hartford Insurance Company in Hartford. And he was a lawyer at first, and he worked his way up to being a very high-level uh, executive. Now, there's a story about him at Yale that uh, when people were doing their doctoral work on him while he was still alive, obviously, they would go to Hartford, they'd drive up to Hartford, set up an interview with him, and Stevens would set up the appointment and meet them outside on a park bench. Now, they, the doctoral students, wanted to talk to him about metaphor and his poetry, of course. And Stevens just pointed to all the buildings that he had insured. So one of the questions that people asked was, is Stevens, is Wallace Stevens a schizophrenic? Is he someone who is split? You know, when you hear this poem, it's going to be bizarre that an insurance executive wrote it and a, a, a very rich, wealthy, successful one. He wasn't a, an insurance executive because his father gave it to him and, you know, he just kind of drifted. He actually worked his way up. So he was a success in the material world. And when you read all of his poetry, it's like, what? He is the perfect example of poems for people who hate poetry, that philosophy. Now, one of the things that pervades all of his poetry is the question that I think he's often asking implicitly, which is, what will suffice. And we'll see what he mean, what that question implies. You know, what's enough? What will suffice? What will be sufficient for something, for a particular view or a particular thing? And, um, you know, one quote he has is, the poem of the mind in the act of finding what will suffice. So in his uh, poetry, you get the sense that he has withdrawn from all external systems of belief that means the church, you know, in his time when this poem Sunday morning was written, this was in the 1920s, he's rejecting nationalism. You know, the idea that your nation is the ultimate value, that everything should be done in the name of the nation. This is what gives rise to communist Russia to some degree, and uh, especially to Nazi Germany. The idea that the, the you know, 10,000 year Reich, 
that that's what all of our work should be building this perfect society for the German race. He rejects all of that, and including the American version of the, at that time, which was that America is the greatest thing, so we should do everything to add to the glory of America. He rejects that. He rejects the idea of finding salvation in God or in the church or any system of belief. None of the kind of frameworks we have. He is, uh, in one sense, a postmodernist, but in another sense, he is following the tradition that is known as the Romantics. Not romance like I'm buying you wine and flowers and things of that nature, but romance in values as they ought to be, or the projection of values as they not only are, but as they ought to be, as they can be. And what you'll find in this poem and in other poems is that, um, you know, in Stephen's work, it is the imagination which fills in the gaps of these other systems of belief. The imagination fills the void that God has vacated. So remember what I mentioned about the stranglehold on spiritual values. Well, rejecting that as you know, someone who does not believe in a supernatural Christian God, literally, like there's a person up there pulling the screen, strings or creating the universe, that if you reject that idea, that's fine. To say that there's no supernatural, I believe that's fine. That there's no supernatural being upstairs or that there's a Jesus figure who came to earth to figure or to fix your sins. So what do you get? What do you need when you reject that? And this is what atheists have always um, suffered from is what do you fill the void with? Well, Stephen's answer is the imagination to some degree. So let's go through this poem. Now, again, the poem is called Sunday Morning, and that is critical to understanding this poem because, you know, what do you do on Sunday morning? You go to church. And I, I can't say the name of this person because they don't want to be um, known or recognized for this necessarily. But I have a friend of mine from years ago who was a philosophy professor at a nearby school to where I went to college. And I wanted to um, do a reading book, a, a, a book club for Atlas Shrugged and Ayn Rand. And this individual suggested that I hold it on Sunday morning. And the reason was that he gave that, you know, he always said that he liked the idea of having on Sunday morning instead of, um, you know, like the traditional thing that you would do to rest and to think about spiritual values that you would go to church. Instead, we would go to literature. Now, I, I would say I wouldn't replace it with just a single book. You know, I wouldn't replace the Bible with Atlas Shrugged or the Fountainhead. I re- would replace the Bible with reading literature more broadly, like any kind of spiritual book that can help you with spiritual values, and poetry. So I'm hoping this podcast might help you with that. But the point is that you know he wanted to replace these the value of um, the, you know that you would get from church by this book club, and I agree with that sentiment. And to some degree, that is what Wallace Stevens 
is doing here. He's saying, you know, forget what you would normally have on Sunday morning, or let me rephrase that, not forget. We'll get into the first stanza in a second, but it's not, he's not saying forget it. He's saying pull the emotional connotation that you would get from um, going to church. You know, of if you've ever been to a grand cathedral, they are designed to evoke a sense of awe and wonder at the glory of God. Well, can you get that in your home by just looking at a cockatoo and the bushes outside and having some scrumptious coffee and some scrumptious beautiful oranges? Can you have that sense of awe from that? And Wallace Stevens is going to argue, yeah, you can. Let's do it. Okay, so I'm going to read the first stanza. Normally, if you listen to this show, you know that I read the entire poem without explaining it, and it never makes sense at first, which is, to me, a mark of a possibly good poem, or at least a complex poem. And then I go through and do what I call a converse with verse, which is kind of explaining or thinking through each of the stands, each of the lines. But this time, I'm going to actually go stanza by stanza and read the stanza, just read one stanza, and then talk about that stanza. Then I'll go to the second stanza and talk about that stanza. And if you'd like, I hope you'll stick around to the very end of this whole episode, and I'll read the entire thing in its entire, the, the full poem in its entirety, uninterrupted. Okay, um, just one little bit of context that will help you, or, or a definition that will help you when you're listening, is there's a word that I don't even know how to pronounce this sucker, but I, I'll do my best, peignoir, which is a um, basically an outer garment worn by women, if you didn't know that. If you didn't know that, I apologize for having you explain that. <laughs> I didn't know it, and I had to look it up, but the first line is complacencies of the peignoir. So the idea, and this is a very, very complicated, poetic, fancy way of saying that a woman, you know, is sitting in her uh, peignoir in, in her complacency, you know, just kind of lounging around. Okay, so let me read the poem, the first stanza. It probably won't make sense. If it does, then let me know. And uh, you know we'll have you come down to the 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 studio here, and you can do the next episode because you're way better at this than me. Okay. Complacencies of the peignoir, and late coffee and oranges in a sunny chair, and the green freedom of a cockatoo upon a rug mingle to dissipate the holy hush of ancient. Sacrifice. She dreams a little, and she feels the dark encroachment of that old catastrophe as a calm darkens among water lights. The pungent oranges and bright green wings seem things in some procession of the dead, winding across wide water without sound. The day is like wide water, without sound, 
stilled for the passing of her dreaming feet, over the seas to silent Palestine, dominion of the blood and sepulchre. Okay, so again, one of the things you're getting, um, you know, you can't drop the context of the title Sunday morning because the idea here is that she is lounging around, um, you know, in her uh, peignoir, in her just her kind of outer, you know, a, a nightgown basically. She's, you know, it's a late morning. She's having her late coffee and oranges in a sunny chair. So it's a beautiful day. Right, but the question that underlies this is, will this suffice? And this is an important question. And you know, if you think about Wallace Stevens a little bit, it doesn't. It's not irrelevant that he was materially wealthy. One of the questions that you know many wealthy people come up with is, is this all there is? Is will this suffice? You know, if I have the nicest car and a big yacht and a plane. And is that, is that what life is? And you know, if you're in self-help literature, you know that that's a common theme. The idea that money can't buy happiness. So that's kind of the question is complacencies of the Peng Noir. You know, it suggests the placid contentment and the informality of her mood as she has her late breakfast. And and the sun and the oranges and the green freedom of the exotic cockatoo add color, and it adds a lot of lightness to the scene. But then, so we have, you know, in a sunny chair and the green freedom of a cockatoo. So she's kind of just sitting there, and we have this bright, sunny, beautiful day. You can imagine she has a little bit of money. She's not poor, right? Poor people don't have cockatoos. And then, um, not usually, (laughs) at least not in America. Uh, And then, you know, this all mingles, but then it begins to dissipate the holy hush of ancient sacrifice. She dreams a little. So in other words, she's contemplating another way or another way of looking at the world or, or asking the question, is this all there is? And she dreams a little and she feels that dark encroachment of that old catastrophe, as a calm darkens among water lights. So we have this, you know, you're sitting around, she's complacent, she's calm, and it's, if you've ever noticed one thing about life, it's in those moments when you're complacent, when things are going well, that your mind can then have the freedom to contemplate things that you may have been avoiding. Like, is this sufficient? Can I just have my oranges on the sunny, you know, I find, let's imagine she's worked for 20 years, busted her butt, and now she's able to sit with her coffee late on a Sunday morning, have her cockatoo, (laughs) and eat some oranges on a beautiful sunny day, looking out into the greenery of this house that she built with her own hands, and then ask, well, now that I'm here, will this suffice? And now she thinks about, oh, the dark encroachment. I mean, this is church. This is the, the Christian belief or the religious belief system of giving things up. You know, should I be at church contemplating the glories of God and a supernatural value system? Is that where I should be? 
Or should I be with the pungent oranges? That's the oranges she has. And bright green wings. That's the cockatoo. So this is, you know, this is a good poet is saying one thing with other words. So he's not, instead of saying oranges and cockatoo again, he's giving you visual descriptions of it. The pungent oranges and bright green wings. So should I be with these things, the, the bright green wings, the oranges, the coffee, my sunny day on my chair, or in this world of, of the procession of the dead, which if, if you've ever been to any church, it's a hell of a lot like a procession of the dead. Even in the, the happy ones where they have like Christian rock music and everyone's screaming, you're still glorifying the dead. That's, I mean, that's always what underlines the, the passages that everyone's talking about. You know, the procession of the dead that winds across wide water without sound. So we are removing ourselves from the natural world. Because the natural world has sound. It has sight. It has smell. You know, there's existence, and then there's a consciousness or a mind capable of grasping it. But in this world of religious supernatural values, there's a world without sound. It's just goes on and on and on forever. The wide water without sound, you know, another way of thinking about that is the physical universe has been emptied of sun and life. Over the sea, then her dreaming feet, so, you know, the day is like wide water without sound, and then her, uh, her dreaming feet pass to Palestine. And then finally, the last line is beautiful, and it's in how it works in, in its melodic method and its way of bringing up new images. The last line reverses everything called up at the opening of the poem. Dominion is used instead of freedom, blood instead of coffee, and oranges, uh, b- blood instead of coffee and oranges and, and sepulchre instead of sun and color. So you get stilled for the passing of her dreaming feet over the seas to silent Palestine, dominion of the blood and sepulcher. So at the beginning, it's, you know, coffee, oranges, sunny chair, green cockatoo. At the end, it's dominion of the blood and sepulcher. So she goes from one world, the world of the physical senses, a world of the, a wonder in the physical senses, to the dominion of the blood and sepulcher, which is Palestine. Another, you know, Palestine is a tradition. It's not just a place. It's a thought. It's a feeling. It's something that people have fought over and died for. Not just the patch of land, but what the land represents. And so that's what they're saying when she, in her dreaming feet over the seas to silent Palestine goes. The dominion of blood and sepulcher. This is a whole tradition of uh, revering the sacred values. Remember what Ayn Rand said about the stranglehold that the spiritual that religion has had on the spiritual world. Well, Palestine represents the religious world. Okay, here is the second stanza. Why should she give her bounty to the dead? What is divinity if it can come only in silent shadows and in dreams? Shall she not find in comforts of the sun, in pungent fruit and bright green wings, or else in any balm or beauty of the earth, things to be cherished like the thoughts of heaven? Divinity must live 
within herself. Passions of rain or moods and falling snow, grievings and loneliness or unsubdued elations when the forest's blooms, gusty emotions on wet roads, on autumn nights, all pleasures and all pains remembering the bough of summer and the winter branch. These are the measures destined for her soul. So now in this stanza, the poet Stevens is challenging this vision of divinity, which, you know, was in the first stanza. And that's the the, um, divinity in silent shadows and dreams on the grounds of its limitation. So he's saying that the divinity of religion has limitations. One of the limitations is existence. It doesn't exist. So that's a problem that religion has, is that there's no such thing as an afterlife. Death is the end. And, you know, so people say you have to have faith. This is a whole other story. But you have to have faith without evidence. That's what faith is. So we're talking from a humanist perspective, that the things that I can see around me, when I walk out with my dog and there are beautiful trees and and uh, flowers blooming, and there's a beautiful sun above, and we're out, you know, playing in the the, the rivers uh, around San Antonio, and there's some beautiful lakes around here. You know, that is the that is paradise. That's where the sensory world. That's the only world there is, and so there's nothing after that. So uh, Stevens is saying, well, there's a limitation in these silent shadows and dreams. Is that well, one they don't exist. That's a problem they have. Now, um, he in the second verse, he's you know it's going against the thought of heaven. He puts things which should be cherished. So that's the things that we talked about um, in the second stanza, which I'll you know uh, go over in a second here. The comforts and beauties of the earth. Now, here's this is important. The divinity that you know this guy's feeling is to be latent in the human soul seems to dwell in wholeness and intensity of of experience. To him, all the mysteries of our own sensuous and emotional apprehensions are the only measures we have of the divine. In other words, we are the divine. Each individual person, you are divine. You, You measure sacred, reverential, glory, worship by the the senses that you have that's the only measure that you have is a, a humanist and individualist viewpoint of things and he says that you know there's uh the divinity he he believes is latent in the human soul and that's i'll say is i keep hammering this home in the podcast here that is the purpose the the underlying belief system that i have for creating this podcast is that is what underlies all of your potential success in not only material but also spiritual world is the latentness that there's something within you a power that is not tapped that can be tapped that can be brought out and not just by cheesy motivational speaking but by a deep rhythmic appreciation and reading of literature 
especially poetry. So, you know, the question in stanza two is, why should she give her bounty to the dead? And I think that's a good question. Why should she give up and sacrifice things for dead things? Why should she give up her Sunday morning and go to a church to, you know, worship the the uh, silent shadows, that the thing that doesn't exist? What is divinity if it can come only in silent shadows and in dreams? Again, there's limitations that, you know, it's saying, what is divinity? It's nothing if it has to do only in shadows and in dreams. Because he's, again, now he's going to, the poet's going to compare the divinity of dreams to the divinity of the world around us and our ability to grasp that. Shall she not find in comforts of the sun? That means everything under the sun. The sun gives life to so much. In pungent fruit, that's her oranges. And in bright green wings, that's her uh, cockatoo. So again, appreciating the world around her. That's one of the things that the humanist is supposed to be doing. The humanist project is to find our own salvation and measuring our own salvation with uh, and weighing of our own salvation with the things of the world around us. Okay. Um, things to be cherished like the thought of heaven. Divinity must live within herself. So this is the idea that God did not create us in his image. We created God in ours. So if we think that these concepts, these spiritual, emotional concepts of reverence, of sacredness, of divinity, of God, you know, like Peterson is doing with his psychological, um, you know, his, his series of lectures on the psychological significance of the biblical stories is he's showing you that divinity lives within yourselves. And if you listen to him, you know, he talks about how there's, um, you know, there's a hierarchy, for instance, this is one of the famous ones he talks about is there's a hierarchy um, within the Bible. And one of the, the things in our psychology is that we have, you know, serotonin that regulates our view of ourselves And that's based on our view of our position in the hierarchy. So the stories in the Bible are actually representations of deep psychological, neurological um, things about us that science can understand. Divinity lives within ourselves. The story of Adam and Eve and being tempted and and, um, Eve making Adam bashful when you know he is seen naked for the first time, is a story that is embedded in our neurology, is one of the things that he's claiming. Divinity lives within ourselves. Divinity lives within us. Our approach to God is within us. We have that because we are the divine ones. And then the world that we live in is the paradise from which we draw any you know fantasy conception of paradise. So when you read about, you know, the pearly gates, well, no one's ever been to a pearly gate. We know what gates look like and we know what a pearl looks like. So we put those two concepts together. We said, there's a pearly gate. And then we know what men look like. So we put, you know, a St. Peter up there kind of, you know, you know, we, we know what a ledger is. So basically we've taken concepts from the physical world, which is the only world that there is. And then we created this myth 
of a spiritual world, and that's the Bible. Divinity must live within herself. Now, this world around us is this paradise, passions of rain. Not just rain, emotion, thing, passions of rain, moods in falling snow, grievings in loneliness, or unsubdued elations when the forests bloom. So notice that there's an emotional side, you know, passion, mood, grieving, unsubdued elations. And then there's the physical side, rain, falling snow, uh, forest bloom. And then we have gusty emotions. I love that. Gusty emotions, just like the wind. So this is a view that he's putting forth, that we are at one. There's a wholeness, W-H-O-L-E-N-E-S-S, wholeness to our experiencing of the world, that there's a world and then there's a consciousness capable of grasping the world. Blooms, or forest blooms, gusty emotions on wet roads. I mean, wet roads are a very beautiful image if you've ever, you know, like, look up um, photos of wet roads, like artistic photos of wet roads. They actually, you know, have a glimmering shine to them. And then we're, we're getting gusty emotions from them on wet roads on autumn nights. So we have a human-made thing. We have autumn nights, which is a natural thing. All pleasures and all pains. Remembering the bow of summer and the winter branch. These are the measures destined for her soul. So these are the things she's measuring. She's measuring her emotional reaction to the world. That's the divine. The divine must live within herself. And as I said earlier, I'm doing this episode on March 20th, the beginning of spring, because one of the constants in life, which we'll come to as we go through this poem some more, one of the things, you know, going back to Thales, is the idea that change is a part of life. And that's a good thing, that there's a forever change. So when we talk about the afterlife, when we talk about this unchanging life and religion, that religion has been pushing down our throats for 2,000 years, that that is a false view and conception of spiritual values. That spiritual values should come from gusty emotions on wet roads on autumn nights. Divinity must live within herself. That's the measured measurements of the soul. The next stanza will be a little bit of the woman questioning herself and her newfound view of the cyclical nature of life and death and that that is the wonder and mystery of the world that we should understand about our own divinity and the divinity of worshiping or, or experiencing the wonder of the world that we live in and that we inhabit. So here's her questioning that a little bit. Jove, by the way, Jove is Zeus, it's ancient Greek god, the the king of all the ancient Greek gods. Jove in the clouds had his inhuman birth. No mother suckled him, no sweet land gave large-mannered motions to his mythy mind. He moved among us as a muttering king, magnificent, would move among his hinds. Until our blood, commingling virginal with heaven, brought such requital 
to desire, the very hinds discerned it in a star. Shall our blood fail? Or shall it come to be the blood of paradise? And shall the earth seem all of paradise that we shall know? The sky will be much friendlier then than now. A part of labor and a part of pain, and next in glory and and next in glory to enduring love, not this dividing and indifferent blue. And next in glory to enduring love, not this dividing and indifferent blue. It's nice. A lot of great little lines in here. One of the central things is the woman can't really accept that view that I read in the second stanza, that man is only a part of nature, and that just as summer implies winter in the cyclical pattern, so life implies death without any future paradise. That sounds like a terrifying thing. Now I lay me down to sleep. If I die before I wake my soul to heaven, may he take. I'm starting to forget all these things that I was taught as a kid. My soul to heaven, may he take. That's not right. But the point is, you might remember that, you know, um, now I lay me down to sleep, little prayer. The idea of that is that if you were to die, you could go to heaven and live forever. If you're a humanist, if you don't believe in a supernatural world, then you believe that this world is it, which is why the intensity of experience, the wholeness of ourselves is really critical. The poet is going to answer her question here, but that's, that's her view. She thinks, okay, so we have um, Jove, Zeus in the clouds, but he's not human, so he's changeless. That's one of the things, that's, that's one of the ways that in the Iliad, Homer described the gods, is they aren't just gods, they're not immortal, but their term was deathless ones. And they're inhuman. They're not humans yet. Just like Adam and Eve aren't actually humans because they're not born from humans. That's kind of important to, becoming a, to being a human. If you're born from a god, you're not a human. Now, the sons of Adam and Eve, they are humans because, you know, Adam and Eve are the first created humans, but they're not fully human because they're not born from a human. Their children are. No mother suckled him, Zeus or Jove. No sweet land gave large-mannered motions to his mythy mind. So he, he has no allegiance to any earthly land as the woman in this poem does. He moved among us as a muttering king, magnificent, would move among his hinds. So in other words, this Zeus, this Jove, is magnificent. He's like a man walking among deer until our blood, commingling virginal with heaven, brought such requital to desire the very hinds discerned it in a star. Shall our blood fail? Or shall it come to be the blood of paradise? So again, she's asking, can the blood that we get of paradise, the blood that she talked about in the first stanza of Palestine, of the ancient 
prehistory, the, the religious view of things, shall that fail? Shall that be the only paradise we have? It seems that the blood of human in relation to nature is not sufficient. She's questioning that. And shall the earth seem all of paradise that we shall know? Is that going to be enough? Well, she said one thing, if, if we did have that with no Jove in, in the clouds, the sky will be much friendlier. That's an interesting statement. The sky will be much friendlier then than now. Because there are no gods. It's our sky. It's the sky of humans. A part of labor and a part of pain and next in glory to enduring love, not this dividing and indifferent blue. Okay, the next stanza. This is stanza four. She says, I am content when wakened birds before they fly, test the reality of misty fields by their sweet questionings. But when the birds are gone and their warm fields return no more, where then is paradise? There is not any haunt of prophecy nor any old chimera of the grave. Neither the golden underground nor isle melodious where spirits get them home nor visionary south, nor cloudy palm, remote on heaven's hill, that has endured as April's green endures, or will endure, like her in remembrance of awakened birds, or her desire for June and evening, tipped by the consummation of the swallow wings. So again, she's asking that, you know, I feel content with when wakened birds before they fly test the reality of misty fields. So this is a, a beautiful way of saying that she's content when birds scatter out and they, they fly around and they're able to test the reality of the world that they're able to fly around in. But when the birds are gone, what happens then? Will it be sufficient to just remember them? And, you know, when we're one of the imagery that goes throughout this is the comparison of birds of various sorts to seraphim or to the angels because angels have wings. Well, birds have wings. So again, everything you see in religion, every idea, every concept, every visual is basically just a human man looked at the world and came up with, um, you know, okay, well, let's put wings on these humans because they're, celestial beings and they probably can fly because they're above us. They're in the skies. That's how they think of religion. That's how religion comes to us. So obviously the men up there and the women up there must have wings like a bird. But when the wings, when the birds are gone and they return no more, where then is paradise? So she's questioning again, this earthly view of paradise because in the, Celeste, in the divine religious view that we've been um, put on us, paradise is always there. It never leaves. The, the wings never go away. We know that it's un- eternal, unchanging. That is the attribute of heaven or of paradise. There is not any haunt of prophecy nor any old chimera of the grave, neither the golden underground nor isle melodious where spirits get them home, nor visionary south nor cloudy palm remote on heaven's hill that has endured as April's green endures 
So he's saying of all these, you know, golden undergrounds or Isle Melodius where spirits get them, you know, in this world of the supernatural outside of the natural, that's what supernatural means, other than the natural, above the natural, that, you know, in this chimera of the grave, this false not truth of the grave, the, you know, there's no golden undergrounds or melodious isles or spirits getting them home. What you get is none of those have endured like April's green endures. Why? Because April's green is real. You can go see it. So it endures forever. It comes back every April. Heaven doesn't come back. It doesn't go away. It doesn't do anything because it's not real. Or will endure like her remembrance of awakened birds. So not only is it real, but her, it's her remembrance that also is real. She gives life to it for herself, to this thing that's outside of herself, April Greens, forever and ever or her desire for June and evening, tipped by the consummation of the swallow's wings. Okay, the next stanza. She says, But in contentment I still still feel the need of some imperishable bliss. Death is the mother of beauty. Hence, from her alone shall come fulfillment to our dreams and our desires. Although she strews the leaves of sure obliteration on our paths, the paths sick sorrow took, the many paths where triumph rang its brassy phrase, or love whispered a little out of tenderness, she makes the willow shiver in the sun, for maidens who were wont to sit and gaze upon the grass, relinquished to their feet. She causes boys to pile new plums and pears on disregarded plate. The maidens taste and stray impassioned in the littering leaves. So, but in contentment, I still feel the need of some imperishable bliss. So she's, the contrast we're getting is imperishable bliss. Meaning something that doesn't change. This is what we've been inculcated with, is what the poet is saying here, is that the view of spiritual values is that the fact that it's reverence, it's worship, it's divine, it's glory, it's God, they, these things are the, that way. They are divine. They are worshipful. They are reverential. They are sacred. It is God. The nature of those things, according to religion, has been that they are imperishable, unchanging, unmarred, unaffected by the natural world. Why? Because they are supernatural. They are outside the natural way of things. The poet immediately challenges that and says one of the probably most famous lines said over and over again, quoted from Wallace Stevens, death is the beauty, excuse me, death is the mother of beauty. This idea that death is the mother of beauty underlines this entire poem. And it underlines the entirety of everything that I've been saying in this episode. 
it's why I brought up Cleobis and Brighton, is that without death, they could not even be considered beautiful. There would be no concept of beauty in human form or in any natural form without death. Death gives structure to our lives. It is where we know there is an end. So we know there is you know, a decline, which means without a decline, there can be no um, incline. Right? You can't have an infinite decline. An incline or a decline infers an incline. And you know, just like you can't have a fruit without it being uh, ripe at one point, and it has to be ripe. There, and ripe means that there has to be something that um, comes, that it has to be unripe. You can't have ripe without r- unripe, right? Without it rot. And it's the same thing with beauty. Beauty is only beautiful because we know that it's, or, you know, it, it's framed for us implicitly within our su- subconscious, but also in the reality of the world. The way our consciousness has always approached the world is that beauty is something that um, is at the pinnacle, like the way we understand it is it's the pinnacle of a certain um, moment. And all of our def- definitions and understanding of beauty have that at its core. So for instance, one way of defining beauty is the most symmetrical um, harmony between different elements. So you look at a beautiful sunset or a beautiful woman, and you know her body is in harmony in some way with the way she carries herself, her spirit, and she looks, according to the nature of a woman, she looks like a woman, and there's a harmony between the parts of the woman. Same thing with like um, a, a sunset. You know, there's there's a harmonious combination of multiple colors exploding on the horizon. And the reason that they seem beautiful to us is because the way they hit our oculus, our eyeballs, and the way those senses work is it brings forth an explosion of a, a harmony that brings a tear to our eye. Now, I'm not going to explain how that all works because I don't know. I think people are doing research on that. But the point is that it's the harmony of it. But part of what we mean by harmony is that there, there's a disharmony. So, you know, there's a harmonious doghouse. that It's a perfect doghouse. It looks great. You know, somebody put a little door. It's just like you saw. And it does exactly what a doghouse is supposed to do. And it looks kind of cool like your house. Your dog can go in there and protect itself from the sun and, you know, kind of just hang out by itself, chewing its little toy like a dog is supposed to. It's a perfect doghouse. But to have harmony in the doghouse, you have to imagine disharmony. You have to imagine a place or a doghouse that's crappy. You know, if anybody's ever made a doghouse or a birdhouse, that's like, is that a birdhouse? Like, that looks terrible. Like I had to do this in wood shop and my birdhouse was actually not bad. Um, or I made like a little hammer or a little chisel wood in, in metal glass and it looked okay. Some guy made another one that looked way better. It's like, Jesus, that's phenomenal. That's beautiful because we, we have a vision 
conception of what a hammer or chisel is supposed to look like, or what a birdhouse or doghouse should look like. And then when it does not look like that, it's in disharmony. So we can't have a view of harmony without a view of disharmony. We can't have a view of beauty without death. Death is the mother of beauty. Death is the mother of beauty. Okay, the next stanza. Is there no change of death in paradise? Does ripe fruit never fall? Or do the boughs hang always heavy in that perfect sky, unchanging, yet so like our perishing earth? With rivers like our own that seek for seas they never find, the same receding shores that never touch with inarticulate pang? Why set the pear upon those river banks, or spice the shores with odors of the plum? Alas, that they should wear our colors there, the silken weavings of our afternoons, and pick the strings of our insipid lutes. Death is the mother of beauty, mystical, within whose burning bosom we devise our earthly mothers waiting sleeplessly. So here we have the poet and the woman asking, okay, there's this deathless paradise, which religion has been sh- ramming down our throats for uh, millennia. Well, in this place, does ripe fruit never fall? That's such a weird contradiction. Not a paradox, contradiction. You can't have ripe fruit that doesn't fall. It just stays ripe forever but then you have no concept of ripe. Or do the boughs hang always heavy in the perfect sky, unchanging? In the Iliad, this is one of the big themes that the gods envy man because man is going to die, because that gives meaning to his days. That gives him a purpose or a reason to have a purpose, the reason to select a a reason for life, the fact that you're going to die. If you're never going to die, if you're never going to perish, if you're never going to leave this earth, if you're never going to just dissipate, then there is no purpose in finding a purpose. Like, what do you need to fill your days with? Why do you need to rush? I mean, anybody who's ever been on a deadline knows that feeling. Like, you're on a deadline, you know, if you're writing something, and you've got to get it done now, that fills every day with extra meaning. Like, you cram more meaning in every minute because you, you have a purpose to finish this thing before that time. But if you had infinite time, because you're unchanging, undying, nothing perishes, you just go forever. If that happens, if that's what afterlife is, then afterlife has no meaning. You can't have meaning without limitations. This is not a minor attribute of existence. This is the law of identity. This is a fact of metaphysical reality. Everything has limitations. Religion has created a supernatural and other-than-natural world where there are no limitations. Well, does ripe fruit never fall? How ludicrous. With rivers like our own, you know, um, 
what does he say? Yet so like our perishing earth. So these things are, this perfect sky is unchanging, yet it's like our perishing earth somehow? With rivers like our own that seek for seas? Well, why does it have that? Why are there seas? Because there's no limitations. So there should just be like an endless water river, endless body of water just hanging in the sky. And it's just endless. Because again, there's no limitations. There's no, there's no beginning and no end. Why set the pear upon those riverbanks or spice the shores with odors of the plum? Like who cares about the senses and the, what gives, what Wallace Stevens is saying is what gives the desire to stop and smell the roses is the fact that you're going to die. If you are not going to die, if you, if, if there is a view or, or if there is an afterlife where you are going to be unchanging forever in this spiritual abyss that just goes on forever, then there's no reason in paradise, in God's paradise, to stop and smell the roses. How horrid. How insipid. You know, as he says, why set the pear upon those riverbanks or spice the shores with the odors of the plum? Why? You can't do that because there's no reason to do that if you're going on forever. Like, why you stop to smell those things, the colors of the, uh, you know, why you stop to look at the colors of the this, this sun? One reason is that it's limited. It's not going to be there for very long. Like, think about when the uh, solar eclipse occurred just recently. Everyone got freaked out and loved it. And they thought it was the most amazing thing. One of the things that made it amazing is that they will not see it again for decades. And some people will never see it again. Some people will be dead before the next one. That gives it meaning. The fact that you're going to have only so many springs You have like, you know, 80 springs, 90 springs. So the spring that's today, if you're listening to this on March 20th when I'm releasing this, the spirit or the the spring of March 20th, the beginning of spring 2018, you this is one more spring you're gonna get, and then you're that's subtracted from the ticker, because you're not gonna get that again. That's what makes it beautiful. That's what underlies the ability to make it beautiful. Okay, and the next stanza, the poet creates the idea of a secular religion whose central ritual is a chant to the sun as the source of life. Supple and turbulent, a ring of men shall chant in orgy on a summer morn, their boisterous devotion to the sun, not as a god, but as a god might be, naked among them, like a savage source. Their chant shall be a chant of paradise, out of their blood returning to the sky, and in their chant shall enter, voice by voice, the windy lake wherein their Lord delights. The tree, like seraphim, and echoing hills that choir among themselves long afterward, they shall know well the heavenly fellowship of men and that perish and of summer morn, And whence they came, and whither they shall go, the dew upon their feet shall manifest. So that 
that you just heard. Um, Supple and turbulent, a ring of men shall chant an orgy on a summer morn, their boisterous devotion to the sun. That is like a pagan chant. So it's not pagan. Like, I don't call myself a pagan. I wouldn't, you know, go around naked dancing to the sun, you know, worshiping a mythic sun god. But this is a hymn, um, you know, is really a celebration of the fellowship of man and nature. And that's one of the reasons why I wanted to do this podcast today on March 20th. Whether you hear it today or on some future Sunday, it doesn't matter, or on any future day. The point is that take the time, and this is like a way to have a new spiritual value. Take the time to worship without religion, without Christian, Islamic, Jewish, Hinduist, supernatural religion. Express a a mastery of the existence around us and our consciousness which is capable of grasping it. That that interplay is where wonder is. It's the divine is in ourselves. So part of um, what he is saying here is that nature alone is sufficient. You know, we're getting supple and turbulent, a ring of men. They're chanting their boisterous devotion to the sun, not as a god, and that's important. They're saying not as a god, but as a god might be naked among them like a savage source. One of the reasons I'm so obsessed with the Greeks, and this is something that has bothered me with Peterson, is um, as much as I love Peterson, and, and he's challenging me to think in whole new ways, but one of the challenges or the problems that I've seen is that all the stuff he seems to enjoy about Christian mythology is done equally or first in ancient Greece. So ancient Greeks were the first people to create gods in the image of man. If you look at all other religions everywhere in the world, and this was true you know, um, to the American Indians and the Aztecs all the way up until you know, um, the Europeans came in the 1500s and gave them you know, a, a religious uh, view of God as man. The, the Greeks were the first to create gods that looked fully like men. Like goddesses were like women. If you look, again, the other gods of the world were kind of animalistic hybrids. They had, you know, a beak for a head and then a body like a man in Egypt. Or they had um, one that Peterson talks about, a Mesopotamian one, is Marduk, which is a god that has eyes all around its head. That may be interesting to look at or think about from a 2018 perspective, but when you really believe in that, that inculcates a terror of the universe. What the Greeks did was project themselves on the image of God, which gives you a sense of exaltation within yourself. Divinity must lie within yourself. It's there in your soul. The Greeks were the first to prove that. And the Christians ruined it, in my view, because they took it, and instead of having gods that were in the shape of men, they 
started absconding and having a supernatural God that was so above nature and he had all of the things of the gods. So he was omnipotent. So all the gods were the deathless ones in ancient Greece, especially in Hesiod and Homer. And, you know, the, but the Christian God is this omnipotent trifold God you know, God, the Son, the Father, and the Holy Ghost, which is this basically omnipotent, omniscient uh, being. The ancient Greek viewpoint was that the gods did actually have a kind of limitations. They were deathless, so they could not, they were immortal, they could not be killed, but they had a limitation, for instance, in the, um, the ability to travel. So <laughs> it's humorous, but in the Iliad, when they're making sacrifices at the beginning to Zeus, I think it's Zeus or some of the other gods. Uh, maybe it's Apollo. No, no, Apollo's the one giving the plague to the Greeks. Um, they're, they're praying. The Greeks that believe are praying to Zeus, but Zeus is unfortunately in Ethiopia, so we can't hear them and he can't really come to them right now. What kind of god can't, god can't get there? A god with limitations. It's something that the Christian gods we're trying to do like this all father that really was a super everything omniscient, omnipotent, omnipresent. He was everywhere. Everything, you know, it's just this, this misty thing. So the chant of these men in Wallace Stevens, you know, a savage God is a sav is the, the savage source and their chant shall be a chant of paradise out of their blood returning to the sky. So it comes from the chanters. And in their chant shall enter, voice by voice, the windy lake wherein their Lord delights. Now that's a play on words. It's a pretty fun one um, because the Lord is the Lord. The sun God is who they're worshiping. And he lights or of lights, you know, uh, the windy lake wherein their Lord delights, the trees like seraphim and echoing hills. So this sun god is lighting and delighting everything around it, that choir among themselves long afterwards. They shall know well the heavenly fellowship of men that perish and of summer mourn. And remember at the beginning, the woman is appreciating a summer morn in her peignoir. <laughs> and now she's contemplating different ways of finding sufficient enjoyment in life. Okay, last stanza. This is the last one. So, here we go. She hears upon that water without sound a voice that cries, The tomb in Palestine is not the porch of spirits lingering. It is the grave of Jesus where he lay. We live in an old chaos of the sun, or old dependency of day and night, or island solitude, unsponsored, free of that wide water, inescapable, Deer walk upon our mountains, and the quail whistle about us their spontaneous cries. Sweet berries ripen in the wilderness, and in the isolation of the sky at evening, casual flocks of pigeons make ambiguous undulations as they sink downward to darkness on extended wings. So Stephen makes the woman hear a voice telling her 
that there is no divine revelation, only natural law. You know, and then he creates, you know, in various sense images, the summing up of the union of nature and man. But in spite of the the heavenly fellowship hymned in that that verse, the the stanza before, the tone might lose a little bit of its jubilance here. So it's it's a little bit different. Uh, a voice that cries, "The tomb in Palestine is not the porch of spirits lingering; is the grave? It is the grave of Jesus, Jesus, where he lay." One of the things that I like about that is it's not saying that. Jesus was not important or had nothing to say, but it's saying that Palestine, the tomb of Palestine, which is where her dreaming feet went at the first stanza to the the place of Palestine, the the religious um, sacred reverential view of the world that we all have. That sacred place is just a tomb. It's just a graveyard. It's just a you know, just like a graveyard where my grandfather rests. My grandfather rests in a graveyard. He was a man. He lived on earth. His name was Michael Barbera. And just like that man who's in a graveyard, it's not a you know a porch for his spirit lingering. It's just a graveyard where his body lay. That's just like the grave of Jesus, which is where Palestine is. That's not to say we have nothing to learn from the great teacher and the values that Jesus gave us and thought about and explicated and his disciples went around and and sent around. But it is to say that he was just a man. So treat him like you would treat Socrates. Socrates, we all know, was just a man. And we can read about him, we can read about his disciples, we can study his trial, just like we can do with Jesus. And we should do that, and that's a good thing. We live in an old chaos of the sun, or old dependency of day and night, or island solitude, unsponsored, free, unsponsored. I love that adjective, unsponsored. We're not sponsored. You know, if I sponsor your team for basketball, I give you a lot of money, but I also kind of have some strings attached. Like I want you to talk about my business. That's a very big thing about sponsorships. You know, if I ever got a sponsor for this podcast, they may pull their sponsorship if I don't do certain things or or say a certain thing a certain way. That's one of the flaws of a sponsorship. It's one of the problems. Now, the, the upside, of course, is that you're sponsored. Someone's taking care of you. But I think what he's trying to say here is we live in this island of solitude. There's no supernatural. There's not a heaven bobble up in the sky that we, you know, our souls escape from, and then we just kind of drift in this deadless, uh, earthless, unchanging, imperishable thing. Instead, we live in an island solitude, unsponsored, free of that wide water, which I love. I mean, that prayer, now I lay me down to sleep, you know, um, if I die before I wake, my Lord, the soul to take or whatever. I don't know why I can't remember right now. But my grandmother used to read that to me and, and make me say it every night when she was visiting us. And it terrified me. Like the concept of a, an eternity was terrifying. It just because it was so endless and vast, so endless and so vast. I remember trembling in terror at that concept, and that's what he's saying. You know, uh, we live in an old chaos of the sun, 
going, 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 of that wide water, inescapable. That's the chaos. That's the, that, that's the unlimited dream, shadow of dreams that the religion has, religious has given us and that Stevens is rejecting here. Now in the last part here, he says, in our paradise, in our spiritual world, in our heaven on earth, deer walk upon our mountains. You can't have deer in heaven. There's no deer in heaven because heaven, one, doesn't exist, but two, you don't have deer in an endless place. You don't have endless deer. Deer walk upon our mountains, and even if they're, you know, in our imagination, we can picture deer, that's only because, you know, we put deer in heaven if we think about paradise. It's like, oh, paradise, after we're dead, there's deer, because I love deer. The only reason you can do that is because there are deer on earth. So deer walk upon our mountains, and the quail whistle about us their spontaneous cries. Sweet berries ripen in the wilderness, and in the isolation of the sky, at evening, casual flocks of pigeon, pigeons make ambiguous undulations. I love that word, undulation. It's one of those words, I don't know the term for this, but it, 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 it means what it sounds like, undulate, as they sink downward to darkness on extended wings. It's a great little final thought that instead of having seraphim or angel wings, we have pigeon wings. That's where we get the idea for angel wings anyway. So that final, final lovely picture of the pigeons is touched with sadness, though, because those ambiguous uh, undulations are the key words. The human spirit extending its wings, but sinking inevitably downward to darkness. So there is, you know, he's, he's not someone who denies the dark side of a humanistic view. He thinks that there is a dark side because there's a... a undulating downward into darkness. As I said at the beginning of the poem, in Stephen's work, it is the imagination which fills in the gaps in those salvation, you know, in that there's no salvation in God or nationalism. We can't find it there because they do not exist. So we need human imagination. And literature is where you can go individually. Yes, you that is listening right now, not some indefinite you outside of you. You, yeah, you. Literature is the workshop of the imagination. That's where the values that will fill the void of the lack of a system of belief that is given to you by the church or by Trump or by the left or by the right. We're getting these from everywhere, and we, we need it. It's part of who we are. We need spiritual values, or actually, we don't need them. We have them whether we know it or not. But if you go to literature, even once a week for 30 minutes, for an hour, instead of going to church, instead of being guilty that you're not going to church, or instead of watching a football game, which I like football, football's cool, but instead of watching a football game for your religious outlet, try another type of value, workshop of the imagination. Because the danger is that you are insufficient in your values because your values are wrong. They're not mapping to reality. 
So you need to challenge those. You need to find out where is the map of reality that you need. That's the humanist project, to find our own salvation. As both Ayn Rand and Jordan Peterson have pointed out, literature is the only place to discover values, human values of action. As one can only discover diamonds in a mind, so can one only discover human values in literature. Now, you have history, but it cannot show you values in history. History can only show you, at best, how men of the past in fact, did value what they valued and what they did in the name of those values. Only through literature in its broadest sense can we discover, contemplate, and eventually select our own values. To do so requires what may be called a religious approach to one thing, the free Contemplation of Literature. Now, for those of you who stuck around, I will read the entire poem, Sunday Morning, by Wallace Stevens, in its entirety, nonstop. Uh, This will be unedited for time purposes because it's getting late and it's Saturday the 19th and I need to get this out tomorrow. So you're going to hear my best approach to Sunday Morning by Wallace Stevens. Complacencies of the Pig Noir, and late coffee and oranges in a sunny chair, and the green freedom of a cockatoo upon a rug mingle to dissipate the holy hush of ancient sacrifice. She dreams a little, and she feels the dark encroachment of that old catastrophe as a calm darkens among water lights. The pungent oranges and bright green wings seem things in some procession of the dead, winding across wide water without sound. The day is like wide water without sound, stilled for the passing of her dreaming feet over the seas to silent Palestine. Dominion of the blood and sepulchre. Why should she give her bounty to the dead? What is divinity if it can come only in silent shadows and in dreams? Shall she not find in comforts of the sun, in pungent fruit and bright green wings, or else in any balm or beauty of the earth, things to be cherished like the thought of heaven? Divinity must live within herself. Passions of rain, or moods in falling snow, grievings in loneliness, or unsubdued elations when the frost forest blooms, gusty emotions on wet roads on autumn nights, all pleasures and all pains, remembering the bough of summer and the winter branch. These are the measures destined for her soul. Jove in the clouds had his inhuman birth. No mother suckled him. No sweet land gave large-mannered motions to his mythy mind. 
he moved among us as a muttering king, magnificent, would move among his hinds until our blood, commingling, virginal, with heaven, brought such requital to desire the very hinds discerned it in a star. Shall our blood fail? Or shall it come to be the blood of paradise? And shall the earth seem all of paradise that we shall know? The sky will be much friendlier then than now, a part of labor and a part of pain, and next in glory to enduring love, not this dividing and indifferent blue. She says, I am content when wakened birds, before they fly, test the reality of misty fields by their sweet questionings. But when the birds are gone and their warm fields return no more, where then is paradise? There is not any haunt of prophecy, nor all any old chimera of the grave, neither the golden underground, nor isle melodious, where spirits gat them home, nor visionary south, nor cloudy palm, remote on heaven's hill, that has endured as April's green, endures, or will endure, like her remembrance of awakened birds, or her desire for June and evening, tipped by the consummation of the swallow's wings. She says, But in contentment I still feel the need of some imperishable bliss. Death is the mother of beauty. Hence from her alone shall come fulfillment to our dreams and our desires, although she strews the leaves of sure obliteration on our paths, the path sick sorrow took. The many paths where triumph rang its brassy phrase, or love whispered a little out of tenderness, she makes the willow shiver in the sun, for maidens who were wont to sit and gaze upon the grass, relinquished to their feet. She causes boys to pile new plums and pears on disregarded plate. The maidens taste and stray impassioned on the littering leaves. Is there no change of death in paradise? Does ripe fruit never fall? Or do the boughs hang always heavy in that perfect sky, unchanging, yet so like our perishing earth, with rivers like our own that seek for seas they never find, the same receding shores that never touch with inarticulate pang? Why set the pear upon those riverbanks or spice the shores with odors of the plum. Alas, that they should wear our colors there, the silken weavings of our afternoons, and pick the strings of our insipid lutes. Death is the mother of beauty, mystical, within whose burning bosom we devise our earthly mothers, waiting sleeplessly. Supple and turbulent, a ring of men shall chant in orgy on a summer morn their boisterous devotion to the sun, not as a god, 
but as a god might be, naked among them, like a savage source. Their chant shall be a chant of paradise, out of their blood returning to the sky. And in their chant shall enter, voice by voice, the windy lake wherein their blood delights, the trees like seraphim, and echoing hills, that choir among themselves long afterward. They shall know well the heavenly fellowship of men that perish and of summer morn, and whence they came and whither they shall go, the dew upon their feet shall manifest. She hears upon that water without sound a voice that cries, The tomb in Palestine is not the porch of spirits lingering. It is the grave of Jesus where he lay. We live in an old chaos of the sun, or old dependency of day and night, or island solitude, unsponsored, free of that wide water inescapable. Deer walk upon our mountains, and the quail whistle about us their spontaneous cries. Sweet berries ripen in the wilderness, and, in the isolation of the sky, at evening, casual flocks of pigeons make ambiguous undulations as they sink downward to darkness on extended wings. <laughs>